Everyone else, please get your Bibles and turn in them to John chapter 6, verses 48 through 59, page 892 in the Pew Bible. Man, thank you, music team. Oh, it was such a blessing to sing together. Oh, that was edifying and good for my soul. <clears throat> Last week, we looked at the glorious doctrines of grace. There is nothing more important for you to know and live in light of than God's grace. Thou must save, and thou alone, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. And that's our problem, helpless, innervating unbelief, as we saw last week with that obnoxious uh, title. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead doesn't do. That's a big problem, requiring a big solution, and that solution is God and his grace, which we saw was and affecting, electing, and ensuring grace. And so if this grace is that good, for it is God himself who is life, giving us himself, and thus giving life to those of us who deserved only death, if there's nothing more important for you to know than this grace, then there is also nothing more important for you to know than how to get this grace. And that was our last point from our last verse from last week. Believe. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Verse 47, we saw whoever believes has eternal life. Jesus could have just left it there. Jesus could have just said believe and then move on. But he doesn't do that. And I think he doesn't because he knows how easy it is for us to get faith wrong. So like a good teacher, the good teacher, he takes steps to clarify what he means. But as we'll see, related to what we talked about last week, what is clarifying for those who are his will end up being only confusing for those who are not. And so it's really quite masterful what Jesus does here. And that mastery is demonstrated through metaphor. And what, are, what are metaphors? Why do we use metaphors? And consider some of the famous ones. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing in them to die to sleep. What's it from? Hamlet. Come on. Somebody besides Nicole. Come on. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. That's a less known Shakespeare play. As you like it. It's as you like it. Go read that one. It's very good. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Romeo and Juliet, obviously. Shakespeare was a master of metaphor, but not the master. For Jesus says here, I am the bread of life. You see, that's a masterful metaphor. And that's what this whole chapter is about. This whole thing is controlled by this metaphor. And a metaphor is just, it's a figure of speech. It's a form of figurative language that communicates by comparison. I want you to understand something, and so I'm going to help you understand that something by comparing it to something else. But by doing so in a beautiful and expressive way. I love this definition of metaphor. It is a poetically or rhetorical, ambitious use of words. And Jesus is very much here using poetically and rhetorically ambitious words. And he does so to great effect and with great purpose. Jesus is stretching the limits of language to communicate to us something of eternal importance and something of extreme delight. I am the bread of life. But they don't get it. They don't like it. Jesus is revealing himself, and he is revealing God's sovereign grace. And the result we saw in verse 41 is grumbling. The teaching of God's sovereign grace is often met with grumbling. It's no different today than it was then. But notice what Jesus does in response to their grumbling. He doubles down. He doesn't back off. He doesn't qualify. He takes the metaphor that is offending them, and then he expands and intensifies that metaphor. He makes things worse. Not just, I am the bread of life. But unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. What? Well, what does that mean? 
And that's our focus this morning. This beautiful and brilliant metaphor that effectively reveals to us the true nature of saving faith. I want us to think this morning of faith as feeding. I want you to think of faith as feeding, of believing as eating. What a joy it is to eat really good food and to drink really good drink. And I love food a lot. I would argue that I enjoy the act of eating good food more than most people. Uh, Melissa's mom has already sent me a picture of her freezer. She has a tub of ice cream that you cannot get up here in New York, that you can only get in the South. It's this tub of ice cream that is the best ice cream ever, and it's there waiting for me in her freezer. So as soon as I get to tiny Maysville, North Carolina, I will lay hold of that ice cream. I will take it into me. I will be filled by that ice cream, and I will find great satisfaction and delight in that ice cream. Even better, both my older sister and sister-in-law are master chefs. I cannot wait to see what they have prepared for us. As soon as I get to Asheville, North Carolina, I will take whatever that food is into me. I will be filled by it. I will find great satisfaction and delight in it. And I'm already thinking about that food now. I'm enjoying anticipating that food. I'm orienting myself and my vacation around that food. I'm directing myself toward that food. Because food, literally, is life. But it is also delight. And Jesus says, I am that. And that is faith. And not believing some bare facts about me. Not being bored by me. Not praying some prayer to avoid hell, but taking me into you. Being filled by me. Finding great satisfaction and delight in me. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's the metaphor that Jesus chooses to illustrate and explain faith to us. And I think this is so helpful and needed today. Here's your question. Have you feasted on Christ? Is Christ, in some sense, I I don't think this is inappropriate, is he in some sense as real and as pleasurable to you as that tub of ice cream would be for me, or whatever that great food thing um, is for you? Or like the crowd, does the graphic and intimate nature of this metaphor make little sense to you? And let's look at this text and ask God to show us Christ and show us what faith in him, into him, really looks like. And then ask him to give us this life-giving, soul-satisfying, pleasure-producing faith. We're going to walk through this this text under four headings. And then we're going to come back to this text next week and spend some more time expanding and unpacking point four. There's just too much here. It's, just, it's too good. So two weeks in this text. Today we'll start with this. We're going to start with the bread of death because Jesus is going to start talking about death. But then we're going to shift to point number two, the bread of life. Well, how is Christ the bread of life? Point number three, we're going to see the death of the bread of life. And then fourth and finally, we will see faith feeding on the bread of life. Think of faith as feeding as we read. So let's read that now. Let's read the text. This is the most important part. I'll be reading in John chapter 6, picking up in verse 48, and I will read through verse 59. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. If you would bow with me, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, help us. 
Father, you have prepared for us a feast. Your word is that feast. Father, help us to feed by faith on Christ through this word here this morning. Father, please help me to communicate clearly. Please help me to communicate in accordance with your word, to communicate only your word. Father, help us to listen, help us to set aside and to hear your word, to be nourished by your word, edified and strengthened and encouraged by your word. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. So we ask for your help now, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, point number one, the bread of death. We have repeatedly seen the people's problem. It's ultimately unbelief. Jesus has supernaturally fed them with physical bread. He has filled their physical stomachs, and they just want more. And Jesus knows that. Remember, he told them in verse 26, they don't actually want him. They don't actually believe in him. They just want more food. He specifically told them in verse 36 that they do not believe. They've demonstrated that in verse 30 when they demanded a sign from Jesus. What sign do you do? What? Right? Remember, he he just miraculously multiplied five loaves and fed 5,000 men with it. But we see in verse 31 what they mean. They mean Moses. They mean manna. Moses fed... Uh, Not 5,000 men for one day, but 1 million people for 40 years. Beat that, Jesus. They do not believe. And so after addressing their persistent unbelief last week in verses 36 through 47, Jesus picks back up on his main theme. Note that he says the same thing in verse 35, and then he repeats himself again in verse 48. I am the bread of life. And now he also then goes back to Moses. Back to the manna that they themselves brought up. Look at verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Okay, you're right. Moses did feed them. A million of them for 40 years. And they died. Skip down to the end of verse 58. He's talking about the true bread. That'll be point two. This true bread not like the bread the fathers ate and died. That is the bread of death. They ate the bread. Now they are dead. They ate, but they still died. And we can solve all the food insecurity in the world, though Jesus tells us we never will. But even if we solved all the food insecurity in the world, all would still die. That delicious Thanksgiving meal, that tub of ice cream I'm looking forward to, that sustenance from my sisters, verse 27, all of it eventually perishes. And I, verses 49 and 58, no matter how well fed, no matter how much food, will eventually die. I will always need more food. And yet all that food, no matter how good, can never solve my death problem. And this is the tragedy and the hopelessness and the helplessness of the human condition. It's death, as Pastor Mike prayed. Do you think much about death? Merry Christmas. You should think much about death. It's coming, whether you think about it or not. Do you live your life much in light of your death? You should, because it's coming, whether you think about it or not. I have been fairly obsessed with death lately. That probably sounds strange to you. That probably sounds unhealthy. I would argue the opposite. I have found it quite healthy. It should be strange that we don't think about death. I was reading an author that I enjoy reading, and he laid out that he has... His normal desk, like mine, which is full of computer and books and a mess, he has his writing desk. He has his own separate writing desk. This is a successful actual writer. So he has his own writing desk with nothing on it except for a human skull. I mean, like a model of a human skull, not a real human skull. But a model of a human skull. To remind himself of his mortality. The ancients used to call this a memento mori, right? A reminder of death, a reminder of our mortality. So he writes always with that there. Um, before uh, his, his face. It should be strange that we don't think about death. This season of death that we have been in, Lydia, Ron, Diane's sister, Mike's father, it's been hard, uh, but it's actually been helpful as well. As we approach the end of another year, it could be a good time to think a bit more about death. I just finished a book on death and the Civil War called This Republic of Suffering, and in it is recorded part of a sermon of a Reverend John Sweet at the funeral of a young 24-year-old Massachusetts man who died fighting for the North. And Sweet, in this funeral message, asks this question. He says, what is death? And he gives a long kind of answer. He talks about it. But he sums it up, and he says, death 
is the middle point between two lives. Death is the middle point between two lives. I think that's actually helpful. I think that begins to draw out something that Jesus is saying here, something that the crowd is missing, and something that we forget very quickly. They are focused only on the physical. They are looking for and living only for the physical, for the now. They are missing that there are two lives. They are forgetting that there is both physical and spiritual, this life and the life to come. And death is the result of this physical-only focus. Death is the result of this forgetting of the spiritual. And why is that? Well, it's because of our design. It's because of who we are and how God made us, body and soul, physical and spiritual. We've, we've heard Martin Lloyd-Jones a few times lately where he says, you have a soul. This is the most important thing about you. This is your most prized possession. And that soul goes on into eternity. And that should be your first focus. Jesus' point in verses 49 and 58 is simple. The physical is not enough. The physical alone cannot sustain you. It cannot save you. It cannot satisfy your soul. Only spiritual food can satisfy your spiritual soul. Again, we all of us so quickly forget this. Again, this is not a that crowd problem. This is not a Jewish problem. This is a human problem. This is an all of us problem. What are you seeking? What do you believe will truly satisfy you? What are you living for? Remember, this doesn't just apply to actual physical food. It applies to whatever it is that we think will bring us ultimate satisfaction and life. Jesus wants us to first see and believe that living for anything of this world and seeking ultimate satisfaction in anything of this world will result only in death. Why? Why is that? Because that means that we are seeking ultimate things, satisfaction in life, apart from the one who is the ultimate thing, who is satisfaction and life. And so you've got to know. I'm trying to encourage you, know yourself. Know how you tend to do this. You've got to know where you seek this and what you are tempted to live for and love above all else. Jesus is demanding that it be him and him alone. And he is demanding that both because he is God and he has that right, but also because he is good. And thus this demand is also and always for our good. Jesus knows that he is the only place that you will find satisfaction and life. And so ask yourself, what are you eating? What are you feasting upon and feeding upon? Where are you seeking life and satisfaction? The things of the world can be good and they are given for our good. Food is good. Work is good. Working out is good. Resting is good. Running is good. Sports are good. Money is good. Vacation is good. Vocation is good. And on and on and on and on. But good things become ultimate things, become death things. Because those things that we have made ultimate draw us and drag us away from the ultimate thing, the ultimate one. This is how bread, which is good, can become death. They ate the bread, but they missed the one that the bread pointed to, and they died. Because if you really think about it, and that's why God gave us food in the first place. Why did he make it so good? Why did he make it so varied and so delicious? Why did he make it such a pleasure and such a joy? It could have just been like a little manna pill that we swallowed to get our sustenance. Why does he do it like this? Well, ultimately, it's to teach us and train us to see him as the one who is so good and such a pleasure and such a joy. Listen, that's the point of the whole of creation. Calvin says this, there is not one little blade of grass. There is no color in this world that is not intended to make men rejoice in the Lord. You see, we're supposed to see these things and delight in these things and enjoy these things and then trace them back to the one who is revealed in these things. If you focus on them first and you miss that, you miss everything. But if you enjoy these things rightly and let 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 them lead you to him, and find great joy and satisfaction and pleasure in him. That's how we use those things rightly. So don't miss it. Don't miss him. For to miss him is to miss life. You seek life only, firstly, ultimately, in this life, you will get death. And so we need point number two. We need the bread of life. We'll try to be quick here. Uh, We've talked about this a lot. But that's because Jesus talks about this a lot. And John talks about this. A lot. Look over the text. In verses 
33, 35, 48, 50, 51, 53, 54, 55, 56, 57, 58. Jesus says something in all those verses about being this bread that is life. And Mike has pointed out how repetitive Jesus is in this section. And that repetition is purposeful. We saw how verse 35 was the first of seven I am sayings in John. I am the bread. I am the light. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, the life. That's all one. And I am the vine. All of those seven things are about life. And this seems somewhat silly to say, but this is important because all of life is about life. Right? Your whole life should be about gaining life. And if you have a soul that goes on into eternity, and you do, and you know that you do, that's why nothing in this life can so fully satisfy that soul. But if you do have that soul, then your whole life should be about getting and gaining the eternal life of that soul. And that's why John writes this book that is all about life. Remember, John introduces us to this theme in the very beginning, which goes back to the very beginning, back to Genesis, which is about the beginning of everything, thus the beginning of life. And so John picks that up in the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so this book that's going to follow must be something to do also with the beginning of life of new life, of spiritual life. Verse 3, all things were made through him. That is, life was made through him. All things found life through him. Because, verse 4, in him was life. And life was the light of men. And John is signaling to us from the very beginning what this is all about. And so that is one of, if not the theme of the book. John loves this word, life. He uses it far more than any other author. 36 times in this gospel, 54 times between his gospel and first epistle. We've had a lot of fun these last three months announcing all the new life that is to come. Right? Sam and Vivian added their name to the list a few weeks ago in Bible study. Right? Three babies to come in the next couple of months. Uh, three lives. Even better... Three girls, right? They're all girls. So I'm, so I'm excited. Uh, you know I love my girls. But Sam and Vivian have already named their little girl, and they have named her. I asked if I could say that. I was making sure. I was like, am I busting something here? They're naming their little girl Zoe, which is the perfect name for a new little life, as that's what Zoe means. That's the Greek word that John so loves and uses 36 times. Jesus is the artos of Zoes. Zoe. And so we're naming our little girl Vera, which is Latin for truth. They're going for Zoe, which is Greek for life. I've told you before that you should only listen to Scottish preachers and, and me, Scottish preachers and me. Um, you know, one of my favorite Scottish preachers is Alistair Begg, and his wonderful ministry is called Truth for Life, right? Vera for Zoe. Right? It's kind of it's fun. Go listen to, listen to Alistair Begg. You would be well served by listening to that ministry. But again, that's exactly what Jesus and John are giving us here. Chapter 20, verse 31, the whole point. These things are written. Here is this truth that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's the truth. And that by believing you may have life in his name. There's the Vera and there's the Zoe. For as the truth, he is the life. Listen, that's what I'm desperate to communicate to you. Because John is desperate to communicate it to you. Every moment of your life, Every thought, every word, every deed is oriented toward your seeking life somewhere. You are never not seeking life and satisfaction. In everything you think and feel and do, you are orienting yourself in some direction and seeking what you think will provide you life. And I desperately want to convince you and myself, I mean, I'm speaking to myself, I want to convince us that that life, that true life is found only in Christ. This is why he has come. John 10, 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And again, just look at how this is all over our text. Just two, this is why I have to do two weeks on this. There's just so much here. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate to us through this brilliant and beautiful metaphor. Verse 48, he is the bread of life. Verse 50, he says, eat of it, of him, and don't die. Right? That is the anti-life, the opposite of life, death. Verse 51, I am the living Bread, eat this bread and live forever. 53, unless you eat, you have no life in you. 54, 
Whoever feeds on me and drinks me has eternal life. 57, whoever feeds on me will live. 58, whoever feeds will live forever. Okay, Jesus, we got it. We hear you. But we don't actually. Because we keep looking for that life somewhere else. And so he graciously keeps reminding us that that life is found only in him. This is why we gather together every Sunday to hear the gospel again and again and again. This is why we must come back to the word daily and be reminded of this gospel again and again and again. This is why we must be in one another's lives and remind each other of the gospel again and again and again. That's why we take the Lord's Supper again, three-week break again, three-week break again. Maybe we need to take the Lord's Supper some more. Side note. But we're so fickle and forgetful. Some of us will forget right when we walk out that door. We'll forget immediately. How quick am I to forget? How quick are we to make the smallest thing into the biggest thing? How, how quick are we to believe that we find life in other things? I can do this with running or reading, with preaching or parenting. You can do it with what? Again, Christian, know thyself. Where are you tempted to look for life apart from Christ? What are you tempted to live for apart from Christ? We need this reminder over and over again. Here is life. He is life. I need this. I need God to teach me this. And that's why this word is here. And that's why it's so repetitive. Because we don't get it. And we prove that we don't get it every single day. And so we have to keep coming back again and again and again. And by the grace of God, keep reorienting ourselves around this word. He is the bread of life. He is life. And thus, he is what life is about. And thus, listen, that means that he is what your life is about. I think Colossians 1.16 contains one of the most profound claims in Scripture. Paul writes this in Colossians 1.16 and 17. For by him, Christ... For by him, all things were created. And there's the life. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Not only are all things created by him and through him, but they're created for him. That's so important. We've got to get this. All things are for him, not you, not me. My life is not for me. Your life is not for you. And our entire lives would be changed if we could live in light of the truth that life is not about us and it's not for us, but first about him and for him. All things were created for him. That'd be a great, you can memorize that. Right? We all struggle with scripture memory, right? All things created for him. Remember that. Your life is for and since he is life itself, he is thus your bread of life. Again, do we really believe that? Does, does our life really reflect that? Bread of life. Yeah, let's, let's keep moving because, because how can he, this one who is everything, this one who is life and the one in whom all things hold together, how can he be life for you and me, point number one, who have sought and bought the bread of death? And how can we be dead in our trespasses and sins and be made alive? Only by point number three. Only by the death of the bread of life. Look down at verse 51. Jesus is again telling us that he is the bread of life, but now he's telling us more how he is the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Remember, there's the incarnation, there's Christmas. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. That's what we just talked about. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Skip to verse 53. Jesus makes what he is saying even more clear here. Verse 53. Truly, truly. Again, amen, amen. Pay attention. Listen to this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And then look at the three verses that follow. Verse 53, 54, 55, 56. Notice that in the next three verses, that's four verses in a row, Jesus mentions eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Again, 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 again. 
Again, so, kind of think of the progression that's going on in this, this long discourse. Why does Jesus start with bread and then explain bread as flesh and then expand flesh to flesh and blood? And don't forget the context of, of chapter 6. We've just seen Moses and manna again. That reminds us of the context. Back in verse 4, John like yelled the context at us in verse 4, where he goes out of his way to tell us, now the Passover was at hand. And John's like planting seeds there. John is, not, John is skillfully directing us where he wants us to go and how he wants us to think. Neither John nor Jesus will allow us to decide for ourselves who Jesus is and what he has come to do. You do not get to determine the deity. And so when we think Passover, we cannot help but think lamb. And in the context of the compelling case that John is building in this gospel, when we think Passover and lamb here, we cannot help but be forced back to think of John the Witness's words back in chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That perfectly anticipates chapter 6, verse 51. And so when Jesus here now starts talking about flesh and blood... And that flesh and blood being given for the life of others. He's talking about sacrifice. He's intentionally taking sacrifice language. He's talking about substitution. And thus he's talking here about the very heart and soul of the gospel. The good news that is the power of God for salvation. The bread which is life that he gives for the world. And remember how important prepositions are. How the smallest words are sometimes the biggest. That's the case I read one commentator this week that claimed that Karl Barth uh, was once asked what was the most important word in the Bible. And his answer was hooper, or hyper. We'd read it, at, we'd see hyper, hooper, which is the word that we see in our text translated as for. Now that's the little preposition hooper. Now, I couldn't confirm that claim. I looked everywhere and I tried to find it, so I don't know if it's true or not, but I like it. <laughs> hooper, for. Here could be tra better translated as on behalf of or in the place of. Why would maybe Bart say that's the most important word in the whole Bible? Because it's a substitution word. It's a sacrifice word. It's a substitutionary sacrifice word. And this is how Jesus, who is life, becomes life to and for us. By his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. This is sacrifice language Jesus is using. The Passover lamb was the prototypical sacrifice. The terrible 10th plague in Exodus chapter 12. Death. God says there will be death in every home. The firstborn of every family will die unless, unless there is a substitute. Unless a lamb dies in the place of the person. Unless the lamb dies and the door is painted with the blood of the lamb. Representing the life of the lamb given in the place of the person. The Lord would see that blood and he would pass over that house. There must be death. There has been death. The lamb has died so that the child can live. And that's how Jesus is the bread of life for dead sinners like us. The wages of sin is death. There's no way around it. We know that it's true. And deep down we know. We resist it, but we know it. We know that it's justice. We know that sin separates us from the holy God. We know that sin is misery. We know that it deadens us and destroys us. The wages of sin is death. We have offended and rejected the God who is life. We get death. The Bible says that's our wage. And a wage must be paid. A wage is owed, for it has been earned. You are a sinner. And you know that you are. And so you will be paid that wage. I will be paid that wage unless, unless the bread of life pays it for us. Unless he pays it for us by giving his flesh for us, on our behalf, in our place, for the forgiveness of our sins. That is the thing that Jesus has come to do. That's the gospel. If you're here with us this morning and you do not know Jesus, and you do not know what this is about, this is what this is about. Jesus taking our place and taking our sin for the forgiveness of those sins. The gospel is that the Father gives his only Son, and the Son gives his very self. 
And he gives himself to death because that's what you earned with your sin. But he comes to take it. And he comes to pay it. This is why the bread of life died. And listen, there's no other explanation that makes any sense. There's no other explanation that solves your sin and death problem. People talk about theories of the atonement. Probably not a very helpful word. There's no, there's no theory here. Jesus has told us here what he is doing. And I know that he's doing some other things on the cross. Yes, he's defeating evil and Satan. Praise God. Yes, he is giving us a moral example. Praise God. But none of those things matter if he is not first and foundationally doing this thing. Jesus is telling us to come to him. He is telling us to believe in him. But he is telling us to come to him as the one who gave his flesh and blood for our life. Thus, to come to him and believe in is to come to him and believe in him as the crucified one. As the substitutionary atonement for the sin which is death. To receive Christ is to receive the crucified Christ. It is to receive the Christ who is the sacrifice for sin as our substitutionary atonement. Thus, again, listen here. To deny that, to deny that substitutionary atonement, to deny that that is who Christ is and what he came to do, is to deny him. To reject his work and the heart and soul of that work is to reject him. And if Christ is not this, then Christ is not bread. And if Christ is not bread, then you are still dead. Listen, we must emphasize this because many today are increasingly de-emphasizing this. I've told you before, I like to listen to sermons from churches in the area just to have some sort of idea of what's going on around us. People are always asking me questions and I want to have some sort of knowledge. Uh, Back after Easter, I was greatly grieved uh, listening to the sermon of an area uh, church, I'll probably get in trouble for that, uh, but an area church and their Good Friday service. The night that Christians are gathering to meditate on the death of Christ and the speaker decided to take that time to intentionally correct how the cross is generally taught. Here's what was said. Sometimes Good Friday would be explained to me as good because I was the one who was supposed to get the kind of death that Jesus got. But he got the death instead of me. That someone had to be punished. And that, by the way, is exactly what I just said. Right? I just exactly said those words. Continuing. That explanation didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It definitely didn't sound good. If this was your understanding that Jesus is being punished by God for something that you deserve to get, chances are it hasn't really set very well with you either. Church, that should make us very sad and very concerned. Honestly, listen, honestly, plug, members stay in the meeting. This is why we need a more robust statement of faith. Because churches are falling apart. And many are falling apart, in part, because they have no grounding in the truth, in God's word. That someone can stand up in what they call a church and call themselves a preacher of the gospel and then specifically deny the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ is a cause for great concern and for mourning and for prayer. I'm sure some of you are thinking right now, you know, he's so negative. I preach what's true. Don't preach against what's false. Who are we to judge others? This is, me not, this is not me quibbling about eschatology. This is not me even talking about the doctrines of grace. Again, what I just read for you is anti-gospel. It is not Christian. You cannot deny the substitutionary sacrifice for sin. That I deserve death for my sin. That Christ came and took what I deserved. That he took the punishment that I deserved. You cannot deny that and be a Christian. You cannot preach that and have a church. Because that's specifically what Jesus is teaching here. The bread that he gives in the place of the world is his flesh and blood. He is the only sacrifice for sin. He is dying on our behalf because of our sin. He dies so that we can live. To deny that is to deny Christ. Don't deny Christ. And as I was listening to that message, I was in the middle of a commentary on John. And outside of my normal theological circles, I like to read broadly and widely. So I was reading this other commentary that also then went on to deny that Jesus was dying as a sacrifice for sin. And this commentary argued that what Jesus' death is doing is it's just it's this greatest demonstration ever. It's just showing us how much God loves us. 
And then as I'm reading that, here's how the speaker goes on to explain the cross after denying Christ's sacrifice for sin. I have come to understand that this Good Friday is the ultimate picture of relentless, never giving up, never stopping, unshakable love. Love that is so great that it would subject itself to hate, ridicule, betrayal, and even death to communicate how deep and wide that love is. So that sounds really nice. But that is, should be like a screaming, flashing red light. Those are key and obvious words and catchphrases from what today is kind of called progressive Christianity. What Jay Gresham Machen called 100 years ago an entirely different religion. It is as meaningless to say that God shows his love for us in dying on the cross as it is for me to say that I want to show my love for you and then to run out those doors and throw myself in one of those dumb cars that stupidly like goes 60 from that light to this stop sign somehow. It goes that fast uh, and to throw myself in front of it. Look how much I love you and throw myself in front of the car. Yeah, I've, I've achieved and accomplished nothing in leaping to my own death with no purpose, accomplishing nothing except proving my stupidity and insanity. But were those doors open? And I saw my three-year-old Tessa wandering in the street, and I sprinted down these steps, out that door, and into the street to throw her out of the way and out of that stupid speeding car at the cost of my life. Then you would see love. Sacrificial love. Substitutionary love. Love that does something. Love that gave up life to spare and save the life of another. Listen, the idea that the cross just somehow shows us God's love, if Jesus isn't doing something about our sin and death, is utter foolishness. We should all go home right now if that's what the cross is. Listen, be wary of anyone that tells you that the cross tells you how much God loves you without them then telling you how the cross tells you how God loves you. He loves us in this way. He is telling us specifically in this passage how he loves us, how he is the bread of life, only by giving his life, his flesh and blood, on behalf of us sinners. Only by taking our place, by taking our sin, and by taking our death. So this is the gospel that Jesus himself is giving to us right now. He says, this is who I am, and this is what I have come to do. Anything else leaves you in your sin and leaves you in your death. The bread of life had to die so that you could live. And if you are to come to him, you have to come to him as he is, the crucified Christ, the Christ as the sacrifice for sin. And how do you do that? Point number four, feeding on the bread of life. Here it is. If you will pardon the pun, here's where I have bitten off more than I can chew. This is actually one of the more debated texts in the Gospel of John. I want to briefly lay some of that out. Uh, next week. Different traditions interpret Jesus' words here differently. So we need to at least uh, look at this. But uh, again, I don't think the text is all that complicated. This is not a text about the Lord's Supper. That's the biggest uh, debate. Some of the more high church uh, will say, hey, look, this is the Lord's Supper. Here it is. Jesus is teaching us about the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to argue, no, that's not what he's teaching us about at all. Uh, we'll look at that a little bit more next week. But this text is about faith. And I think that's very clear, actually. Remember, look back. Jesus starts teaching on the bread. And he says in verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe. Remember, believe and faith are the same word in the Greek. Pistuo, pistis. We use the verb believe and the noun faith, but it's all the same. Believe, have faith. Verse 35, the main verse, Jesus reveals himself as the bread of life and says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Those are the same thing. There's the bread, and then there's the belief. And belief is how we come to Christ. But note how he links the metaphor of bread to the response of belief, of faith. Verse 37, he says, whoever comes to me. Verse 40, he said, everyone who looks on the Son. Verse 44, again, no one can come to me. Verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. And that's where we ended last week. And then Jesus goes back to the bread in verse 48. And then look at 51 again. In 51, he specifically says that anyone who eats this bread will live forever. 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So if you compare verse 47 with verse 54, look at the two, 47 and 54 together, this is clear. 47, whoever believes has eternal life. 54, whoever feeds and drinks has eternal life. 
Therefore, to feed and drink is to believe. This is the metaphor. This is how Jesus is brilliantly describing faith for us. This is the revealing and concealing metaphor. And so this is what I want you to take with you and and chew on for this whole week. Faith as feeding. And then we're going to come back and unpack that more next week. And we're going to come back and unpack verse 56. We're doing a whole other sermon because I couldn't get past verse 56. This verse, this truth is too good. This is faith. This is what it is and does. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Oh, what a beautiful and intimate picture that is. This is what faith is and results in. Intimate fellowship. Union and communion with Christ himself. The Christ who is life in all its fullness and then imparts that life in all its fullness to us through faith. And so this faith then must be so much more than believing some facts about Jesus. If Jesus is the bread, if he is food, then faith is feeding on Christ. And so how do you feed on and receive spiritual bread? That's what we're going to talk about next week. But, well, how do you feed on and receive physical bread? By taking it into you. You you take it, you eat it, you chew on it, you ingest it, you digest it. It literally enters into you and becomes part of you. And then it forms you and it fuels you. It's the same with spiritual bread, with Christ. You are what you eat. Faith is eating, feeding on Christ. And so it is by and through faith that we become like Christ. And so I want us to think and look a lot more closely at this. I want us to consider faith as feeding. I want us to see the necessity of regular feeding. To see the delight of regular feeding. To see the strength that comes from regular feeding. The comfort that comes from regular feeding. And then I want us to look a little bit about how practically we can do this. And spoiler... The key is going to be verse 56 and abiding. The key is going to be abiding. And we're going to cheat ahead and see the key to this is in verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus says, I am the life. And he says, these words are life. So here, church, is our food, right? Here is how we feed. For here is where we find the Christ who is life. And so this week, see and know your need for nourishment. And then believe that that nourishment is found only in Christ. And that Christ is found only in his word. And then act accordingly. He is the bread of life. And church, we have the greatest privilege in the world in feeding on him. In in knowing and loving and being filled by him. The main thing that I want to communicate. This this is why we read Psalm 16 again. I I love Psalm 16. We've memorized it as a family. I come back to it uh, again and again and again. I love that psalm so much because it communicates us to us so poetically and beautifully the goodness of what it is that we have in Christ. Right? I've told you before that I'm a, I'm a robot and I'm stunted in all my emotional abilities. Right? I'm, I'm kind of boring and dead. Um, I've, it's taken me so long. The psalms have really just kind of changed my life to see how David writes about the Lord and how he pants after the Lord and how he loves the Lord. And there in Psalm uh, 16, right, he, he tells us um, that God is our only good. I have no good apart from you. God is our portion. God is our uh, cup. Uh, We have a beautiful inheritance. We shall not be shaken. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. All because of God. That's what I want. I want my heart glad because of his grace. I want my heart glad in the Lord. I want my whole being to rejoice in who he is and what he has done uh, for me. Uh, All that is because it tells us he makes known to me the path of life. That's exactly what Jesus has just done for us in John 6. He's made known to us the path of life and making known to us his very self and his very work. And then the psalm goes on to say that with him there is fullness of joy and there are pleasures forevermore. Church, that's what's offered to us. Life, fullness of life. And what I want to better understand and better communicate is how good that is and how good he is. We're just so often so bored and so apathetic and so sad. This is, again, this is why we need all the other things. 
This is why I need the running or why I need the sports or I need something else to entertain me or occupy my time because I'm not yet satisfied in the way that I should be in him and in him alone. And so I want to enjoy things rightly that God has given, but I want those things to feed me and fuel me and lead me towards him to find joy and satisfaction and gladness in him. And so maybe we've, maybe we've missed something. I know that I have missed something. And so my desire is to know him more fully. My desire for us together as a church is to seek to understand him more fully and then to seek and understand faith more fully and then to feast and delight in him and find great joy in the life that we are given in him. He is the bread of life. He's the bread that both imparts life and banishes death. And so church, I want you to go into your week this week thinking on faith as feeding on Christ. And I'm going to pray that we would find great satisfaction and great delight in him as we do so um, by God's grace. But for now, let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Bow, bow with me. Father, thank you for your word. I am not capable of unpacking it satisfactorily. I'm not capable of drawing out the depths of the beauty and the glory and the goodness that is contained in these words. Father, we ask that you would work uh, by your spirit through your words. We ask that you would do the thing that I cannot do and the thing that none of us can do. We ask that you would show us Christ. We ask that you would fix the eyes of our hearts, fix uh, us by faith upon him. Show us how good he is. Father, make us aware of the idols in our hearts that, we're, that compete, that we allow to compete with him. The things that we look to because we don't yet find the satisfaction in him that we desire. Father, point those things out. Help us to kill those things and set those things aside. Um, Father, fill us with the fullness of life that is offered in Christ. Father, we pray that uh, growing affection for him would drive out the uh, lesser, weaker, sinful affections we have for other things. Father, I pray that you would help us to love Jesus. Father, help us to actually believe that he is the bread of life. Teach us what it means to believe in him. I pray that you would use this beautiful metaphor Christ has used uh, to teach us what that looks like by feeding on him, and by drinking of him, that we would take him into us in all that we do and that he would shape us and form us and fuel us. Father, I pray that he would gladden us and give us great joy. Father, if we are dead and you have given us life through the only way that that could happen, uh, through the death of your very son, oh, Father, what do we have to complain about? Father, give us great joy in this truth. Um, Father, may we be a church that preaches that truth boldly, uh, winsomely, oh, Lord, pointing to the goodness of Christ and what he has done to rescue us from ourselves and from our sin. Father, we ask for your help. What a privilege it is to be together and to be a church and to get to gather around your word. What a privilege it is to get to preach your word. Father, we ask that you would honor your name. We ask that you would edify your people. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.